So let's look at chapter 15 from, the, from verse 14 onwards anyway. Uh, let me pray. Lord, as we come to this chapter in your word, we, we know that it is your word. It is living and active and powerful. We know that when the Bible is opened, when your word is explained accurately and clearly, in line with the whole counsel of God in the scriptures, you speak. And we pray, Lord, that as we come now to your word, that you would come to us in your word, that uh, we will see no man save Jesus only. And we ask it in his name. Amen. How do you make God laugh? I think you probably know the answer to that. It was John Cleese's favorite joke, apparently. How do you make God laugh? Tell him your plans. And that's what Paul is doing here in Romans, uh, particularly in, here in Romans chapter 15. In fact, Romans chapter 15, in a strange sort of way, is the, um, the key to understanding why Paul wrote Romans in the first place. But it looks like just uh, he's sharing his travel plans with us, isn't it? Uh, and there's nothing more boring than that, I suppose. People's photos are a little bit, you know, <laughs> people go, they go on holiday and they come back and they've got a camera full of uh, photographs and your eyes glaze over, but you try to be interested. Um, and we're about to go to Europe next week and uh, my wife's really excited about the itinerary. And um, I don't think there's nothing more boring than other people's travel plans, but just look at verses 24 and 25. Here's Paul's itinerary. He says, I plan to go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. So he's in Corinth. We'll, we'll see that when we get to chapter 16. That's where he is when he writes this letter. He's in Corinth. He wants to go to Spain. And he's going to have a stopover in Rome. But first he's got to go to Jerusalem. Now, that's a 3,000-mile round trip. I've been to Johannesburg a couple of times from Australia, and instead of flying direct, it's always been cheaper for me to go through London, which is very convenient, because I've got, or did have family in the UK, and so I always used to take that option. Is that, is that it? Has, has he got a cheaper flight? Is that... And has his travel agent come up with a good deal for him? Has he got a round-the-world ticket or something like that? I mean, why else would you go from Corinth to Spain through Jerusalem with a stopover in Rome? Why not go direct? And why Spain, anyway? Why does he want to go to Spain? Well, he tells us, doesn't he, in verse 20. It's, it's, it's not for the beaches in Barcelona. It's not for the bars in Benidorm. It's not for the museums in Madrid. Look what he says there in verse 20. He says, It's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. That's a worthy ambition, isn't it? That's not just an ambition for pioneer missionaries. That should be an ambition that every one of us has. Because there are so many places here in Tasmania. There are so many people so many people groups where Christ is not known. And it should be our ambition as, as Christians. 
to preach the gospel where Christ is not known. Francis Xavier, founder of the Jesuits in the 17th century, famously challenged a bunch of university students in his day with these words, give up your small ambitions, come with me and save the world. That's what Paul wants to say to the church in Rome. That's why he wrote Romans. That's the message of Romans to us. It's not a systematic theology. We often take it that way because it's packed full of the most precious doctrine. But he's not writing a systematic theology. This is an apology for worldwide evangelization. That's why he wrote Romans. Come with me, he's saying, to the church in Rome. Because Rome is the capital city of the world. It's the center of everything. <laughs> And he's saying to that little church in Rome, or perhaps not such a little church in Rome, he's saying to those Christians, come with me and save the world. Join me in breaking new ground for the gospel. I think there's an urgent need for us to be doing that. Here in Tasmania. If reading Romans doesn't make you want to do that, then you haven't understood it properly. So what's it going to look like then to... Break new ground for the gospel. For us, I'm not talking now about the institutional church, I'm talking about this room, I'm talking about us. What, 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 it, what will it look like to boldly go where no one has been before? How are we going to do that? There are just four things, I think, that are in the chapter. Uh, how, how do we do it? By proclaiming, by pioneering, by partnering, and by praying. So first, first and foremost, of course, it's about proclaiming Christ. See what he says there in verse 19? From Jerusalem all the way round to Illyricum. I'm hoping to go all the way round to Illyricum next month. You know where it is, don't you? It's Albania. <laughs> Got around this guy, didn't he, Paul? <laughs> From Jerusalem all the way round the... the, the uh, Eastern Mediterranean, right up to Albania, Macedonia. I have fully proclaimed, he says, the gospel of Christ. That's an amazing statement. And now he wants to go to Spain. Why does he want to go to Spain? Because he wants to start on the Western Mediterranean, that's why. He's covered all the ground from Jerusalem right up to uh, Albania, and now he wants to go to Spain so he can go around the Western Mediterranean. The world is his parish. But do you notice how he describes it? He's, it's proclamation. My friends, we mustn't, we mustn't allow ourselves to lose that. I heard of a, a couple of ministers who were recently turned down by a particular missionary society because they were only Bible teachers. <laughs> That's a bit strange, isn't it? I know you've got a, it's difficult to get into some of these closed countries and you need other skills and you need to be able to come with other with other reasons for a visa and all the rest of it. But primarily what we're about is proclaiming, proclaiming the gospel. See, the language Paul uses to describe this is, is interesting. Look at verses 15 and 16. He says, I've written to you, he's writing to the Roman Christians, I've written to you because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ, Jesus, to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. 
See, that's the language of Old Testament worship. It's, it's temple terminology. The word Paul uses for minister trans, translates literally as liturgist. That's how he sees himself. As a liturgist of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. You know what a liturgy is, don't you? It's the order of service. It's, I, wonder, I, I can remember once, quite a long time ago now, being told that, oh, you people, you're always on about evangelism. We're into worship, as if there, was, as if there were two separate things. Evangelism is how we worship. We, we are a kingdom of priests, and it's to proclaim the, 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 the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Evangelism is worship. When you, when, you, when you praise someone, yes, you can praise them to their face, and we do that when we sing our hymns and we pray. And, but you can praise that person to someone else, can't you? And that's evangelism. And that's what we're for. We're priests. Don't wear robes. But we're priests. We're a kingdom of priests. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. A holy nation to proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. I wonder if you've ever seen or thought of evangelism in that way. He's proclaiming the gospel of God to the Gentiles, Paul says, is my priestly duty. And those who are converted under my ministry, he says, they are an offering that I bring to God. They are sanctified, they are set apart by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. It's exciting. You know, when the gospel is preached, something supernatural, something powerful happens. See, priestly ministry in the New Testament is not about wearing robes and offering sacrifices on an altar. It's not bells and smells. It's proclaiming Christ. That's priestly ministry. It's what we do at the Lord's table, isn't it? For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, what do you do? You proclaim the Lord's death till he come. It's, it's, not, about a, it's not about a priest standing at an altar, facing away from a congregation, representing Christ to God. That is a blasphemy. A lot of people believe that. That in the Mass, the priest, the bread and wine actually becomes literally the body and blood of Jesus and the sacrifice is represented on the altar. <laughs> That's not what we do when we separate the bread and the wine at the table. We're not representing a sacrifice. We're representing the once and for all sacrifice, the finished work of Christ. That's... That's why we have the Lord's Supper, is to keep us on message. And that's our message. It's done. It's finished. We go to the world not with bread and wine. We go to the world with the gospel of the finished work of Christ, don't we? The good news. As Martin Luther said, we live as though Christ died yesterday, rose again today, and is coming back tomorrow. <laughs> I love that. We should, every day we wake up, those are the, the truths that should be in our hearts and minds. 
Christ died and rose and is coming back. And we go to the world with that message. And, and that message, of course, you know, it's, it's good news. Uh, it's, it's through that message that the, the middle wall of partition has come down. You know, the big divide in the ancient world was the Jew-Gentile divide. But look at verse 26 and see what the gospel does when it's preached. Such a powerful demonstration there, verse 26. Paul talks there about the collection. Now, what's that all about? See, he wants to go to Rome so that he can get to Spain. But he's got to go to, he's got to, go to Jerusalem first, way out of his way. He's got to go hundreds and thousands of miles out of his way. Why? Because he's taking up a collection. <laughs> he's taking up an offering from the Gentile churches for Jewish believers in Jerusalem who are suffering from famine. <laughs> just, just stop for a moment and think about that. Jews and Gentiles had absolutely nothing to do with one another. As far as the Jews were concerned, they were Gentile dogs. And now here is the Apostle Paul going around his Gentile converts, collecting money for Jewish believers who are suffering famine in Jerusalem and going hundreds and thousands of miles out of his way to bring, and a great danger too, as we'll find out, to bring that, that love offering. See, do, you see what the, do you see what the gospel's done? Do you see what the cross does? It brings down that great divide, that middle wall of partition that separates Jew and Gentile. What a demonstration of the gospel that is. I, I was, um, uh, I think I saw Bobby Joe. Is she still here? Are you still here, Bobby Joe? Yeah, there she is. How could I miss seeing Bobby Joe there? So I, I remember when Brian Wilson there in La, in La Trobe, when we were doing, trying to do some church-based church theological education together here in Tasmania, we went to the States to a place called Iowa, uh, to a church planting conference there about um, church-based theological education. And I can remember uh, meeting there at that conference uh, two men from the Congo who were joint leaders of a church planting movement consisting of about 7,000 churches. Uh, they'd been on opposite sides of a civil war. In fact, in fact, listen to this, one of them had been personally responsible for the massacre of the other's family. And now here they are together in this conference, brothers in the Lord, fellow laborers getting the gospel out. See, that's what the gospel does. That's what the gospel's been doing all over the eastern Mediterranean, from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, up to the shores of the Adriatic, reaching into Serbia, Albania, and Macedonia. Walls have been coming down, and people have come out of their ghettos and embraced one another in Christ. That's the first thing. I mean, just, just tying in with what we said in the last talk, you know. We, we want a tolerant society here, the politicians are telling us. We've, no, this, only the gospel, gospel can bring down those barriers and unite people from different cultures and different backgrounds. The proclamation of the gospel, that's the first thing. We must be clear about that. Secondly, 
uh, it's pioneering. See what he says in verse 20 again? He says, it's always been my ambition to boldly go where no one has been before. He sounds like Captain Kirk from the Starship Enterprise, doesn't he? Back in 1768, a 39-year-old British sea captain set off on a journey of scientific discovery. Uh, he'd been hired by the Royal Society to observe the transit of Venus across the sun. And the journey would take him quite literally uh, into uncharted waters. And when eventually he saw a shoreline, it kind of reminded him of South Wales, where I'm from. So he called it New South Wales. The man's name, of course, was Captain Cook. Not Captain Kirk, Captain Cook. <laughs> and here's a line from his journal. I had ambition not only to go further than any man had been before, but as far as it was possible for man to go. See, that was Paul's great ambition. To boldly go where no one had been before. Not because he was an adventurer like Captain Cook, but because he knew his Bible. Look at verse 21. He knows he's not on a fool's errand. He knows he's not on a wild goose chase. Look at verse 21. He's quoting from the scriptures. He's quoting from the prophecy of Isaiah. As it is written, he says, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. But how will they see? How will they understand unless someone goes? When the London Missionary Society interviewed David Livingstone, he was asked where he wanted to go. And you know what he said, don't you? Anywhere as long as it's forward. And when he arrived in Africa, he rode home saying that he was haunted by the smoke of a thousand villages. <laughs> Even just driving up the Midland Highway. And it's not a thousand villages, but there are lots of places where there's no gospel witness. He said he was haunted by the smoke of a thousand villages stretching out before him. All those communities where there was no gospel church. All those people who were without hope and without God in this world. These things haunted him and disturbed his sleep. Now you might think that after so many um, centuries of missionary activity, no one really needs to pioneer anymore. Surely there's nowhere left now for us to go with the gospel, but you'd be totally wrong. The need is ten times greater today than it was in Paul's day. At least ten times greater. There are ten times as many unreached people in the world now as there were in Paul's day. Eight million Muslims in Europe are unevangelized. One in five has never heard of Jesus. Dozens and dozens of people groups are without a Bible in their own language. And there are whole nations without a church. And that's the world that we live in. I remember hearing about uh, an African bishop who was visiting the UK and being shown around uh, a parish church in one of these country parishes, which dated right back to the 11th century or something like that. And the vicar told him proudly, our church has been here for 800 years preaching the gospel. And the bishop, this African bishop with tears in his eyes said, why did it take you so long? Hundreds of years. And you left us in the dark. What took you so long? Why did it take so many centuries for the church to wake up to its missionary responsibility? And still today there are people waiting to hear for the first time. Waiting for us to put on our gospel boots and to go and tell them about Jesus. 
C.T. Studd once asked, why should anyone have the opportunity to reject the gospel twice when some have not had the opportunity to hear it once? Now, pioneering, of course, doesn't necessarily mean putting on a pith helmet and going to some remote part of the planet. It's about what happens in your everyday life. It's about who you're going to sit next to on the bus. Actually, it's about deciding whether you're going to take the bus into town or, or not. It might be strategically a very good idea to, instead of driving in, which is more convenient, to actually take the bus in so that you sit next to someone who hasn't yet heard about Jesus. It means thinking about who are the people that are not in our church churches. In Acts chapter 6, it said a great number of the priests were obedient to the faith. They were the, that was the hardest group you would ever reach. <laughs> what are, the, what are the, the, the tribes that are not in our church? What about the skate park? <laughs> what about the top end of town? Who are the people who are gospel ignorant? How, how can, together, how can we think of ways of actually breaking into that territory with the gospel? Not, not in some dramatic kind of fighting sort of way, but getting alongside people, sitting next to them, taking an interest in them, praying for opportunities to tell them about Jesus. Asking ourselves every day, where do I go next with the gospel? Praying every day that the Lord would send someone across our path who needs to hear about Jesus. And then keeping our eyes open expecting it to happen. Paul wrote Romans for that very purpose, to put that on the agenda, to boldly go where no one has been before. And that's us, that means us as well. So it means proclaiming, it means pioneering. I don't know if you ever thought of yourself as a pioneer, <laughs> but we're, as, as Christians, you see, the Great Commission, we often say, that, you know, when we preach the Great Commission, go. But that's not what the Great Commission says. The imperative is make disciples of all nations. It's as you go, it's a participle. Every time you go out of the door, you're to, you're to look for people that you can disciple. As you go, whatever you're doing today, whatever you're doing tomorrow, as you go, go with that mindset to share Christ, to make him known, to introduce him to those who have not yet heard. So it will mean proclaiming, being clear about the message, the finished work of Christ. It will mean partnering. Sorry, it will mean pioneering. And thirdly, it will mean partnering, because we can't do this on our own. That's why Paul is writing, I say, this letter to, to the Roman Christians. He's recruiting them, do you see? Look at verses 23 and 24. He says, I'm on my way to Spain, and I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there, after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now that is a technical term in scripture. Paul is not a freeloader. He's not simply looking for a, uh, a bed for the night. When he talks about them assisting him on his journey, that's a technical term. So when he writes to Titus, for example, he says, do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Zenos and Apollos were not, again, they were not freeloaders, they were gospel workers who needed support. See, there was no... Um, I, one of the reasons I came to Australia was because I was fed up with independency. In, in, in the UK, 
most of the evangelical life is outside of the denominations. I mean, there are some notable exceptions in the Anglican scene in, in, in England now. And then I came to Australia and I found even within a Presbyterian denomination that we're so independent, looking at, you know, just looking out for ourselves. There's even competition and rivalry between churches. The New Testament church was interdependent. That's, that's what Paul's talking about here. John uses similar language when he writes to his friend Gaius in, in that lovely little letter, 3 John, which is so easy to just skip over and forget it's there. Dear friend, he says, you're faithful in what you're doing for the brothers, even though they're strangers to you. They've told the church about your love. Here are people who've come to this church that Gaius is leading, come from, out, from, out, from somewhere else. And... and Paul say, uh, John says to them, you will do well to send them on their way, you see, in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the, the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. That's what this is about, working together for the truth. How can we do that in Tasmania? Instead of trying to grow our own little kingdom. <laughs> Wanted to see our church grow at the expense of another church down the road. <laughs> How can we work together for the truth? Gaius was a Christian who could be relied on to help gospel workers on their way. There was another guy in that church called Diotrephes. He was a pillar in the church. You know what a pillar in the church is, don't you? Someone who holds things up and blocks vision. <laughs> and... There's a lot of those people around. Diotrephes, he says, this isn't how he describes Diotrephes. Diotrephes, he's the man who loves to rule the roost in that church. He loves to be first. He'll have nothing to do with us. He refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. How many churches have been ruined? How many lives have been ruined by power brokers? who hold the reins and allow nothing to happen unless their fingerprints are on it. My friends, let me ask you, are you a Gaius in your church or a Diotrephes? Are you a help or a hindrance to gospel work? And so when Paul tells the Roman church that he hopes that they will assist him on his journeys, he's not, he's not just asking for a bed for the night. He says, the reason I'm coming to Rome is not just to enjoy your company, it's to plunder your church. I'm coming to recruit a team. I want you to be gospel generous. I want you to be the new Antioch in Rome. I want to build a base for the evangelization of the Western Mediterranean. He wants them to partner with him, you see, and, and send him out to Spain. And the question is, for them and for us, the question is, will I go or shall I stay? And that's still the question for each and every one of us. We used to run MTS challenge conferences up here at Camp Clayton, ministry training strategy, trying to challenge people into ministry. It was a deliberate attempt at career diversion, <laughs> not too subtle at times. And I'm not sure, I think sometimes we might have done a bit of damage. We were too, probably too forceful in trying to 
squeeze people into gospel work when they should have perhaps followed a different path. Without the call of God, I think. Uh, anyway, I won't go down that track. <laughs> I'll be on another sermon. But I remember Philip Jensen used to help us out a lot. He's, you know, the dean of, well, he's retired now, but he was the dean of Sydney. And he, used to, he came for the first three years, I think, to our conference and did the Bible talks. And uh, I can remember him once, because uh, part of the challenge was to, to, to really lay it on the line and say, to say well, why not? Why don't, you know, why don't you think about full-time ministry? And uh, he, he related the story about how he once challenged a young lawyer to give his life for full-time gospel ministry. And that's a huge ask. I mean, lawyers earn packets of money, don't they? You'll never be rich if you're a gospel minister. And, and he struggled. And he's, of course, there's the family expectations. He's done a, a university degree. He's got a, a career prospect in front of him. Prestige of being a lawyer. And uh, in the end, he, he just said, look, I don't think I can do this. But of course, I, I can earn money, and I'll, I'll support ministry, uh, I'll support gospel workers by, by earning money as a lawyer. And Philip Jensen apparently said to him, well, that's okay, as long as you live on a minister's stipend and give the rest away. <laughs> <laughs> Philip Jensen's like that. <laughs> He's very direct. But it's right, isn't it? Will I go, or shall I stay? And if I stay, then it must be to pay and to pray, doesn't it? Because we're all in this together. We don't just wave goodbye to people who go off to theological college or off to missionary service and then just get their prayer letters every now and again. <laughs> That's not the New Testament church. I want you to assist me on my way, he says. That brings me then to the most important ingredient in, in mission, in worldwide evangelization, and, and that's prayer, of course. And I put it last because it's first, really, of first importance. Look at verse 30. And notice the urgency in his voice there in verse 30. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Notice that, join me in my struggle. Prayer is a struggle. I don't know about you, I find prayer really hard work. It doesn't come naturally to us, does it? I need other people around me to pray, really. I give in far too easily. My concentration lapses. I don't get anything out of the prayer meeting, you say. Well, you're not supposed to get anything out of it. You're supposed to put something into it. Did you realize that? See, we used to have, uh, everywhere I've, we, we used to advertise our prayer meetings in Ann Street in Brisbane as the working bee, because people like working bees. <laughs> and if they think it's a working bee, they'll turn up. Well, it is a working bee. It is a working bee. We're not praying for the work. Prayer is the work that we have to do. It's hard work. And it's not happening. We... Everywhere I've been, in, in London, in Hobart, in Brisbane, I've tried to teach the churches that I've pastored 
the importance of congregational prayer. I don't mean the praying in the service on a Sunday, which is also really important, and praying in small groups and praying in our growth groups and praying for one another one-to-one. -one. All that's important, I don't misunderstand me, but there is something in the New Testament that's largely missing from our churches in Australia, and that is kingdom-centered, extraordinary prayer, Acts 4 type prayer. Where the, do you know, in, in, in Acts chapter 4, there was a prayer meeting, and guess who was there? Everybody. There wasn't anybody missing. They were all of one mind in one place, pleading Psalm 2. What we try to do uh, is to say to people, look, uh, this week, once a month, in, in, in Brisbane, we could only manage to do this once a month, the church prayer meeting is on the first Wednesday of every month, and that week, absolutely everything else is cancelled. No other meetings. You can't have any other meetings that week, because this is what the church does this week. Now, we haven't been, we never got, we've never got everybody together in one place, with one mind, to pray, even though the world's going to hell. Even though our relatives and friends are without hope and without God in the world, somehow or other, we've got other things to do. We've managed to boost numbers, but it's not about numbers. It's about being of one mind in one place with God's word in our hearts, pleading with him to do something. Because, you see, why, why don't we have prayer meetings? It's, it, it's, it, is, it is a vote of no confidence in God. It's saying, look, hey, we, okay, God, we've got this. <laughs> you know, we've been to that seminar. We know how to do this. We can get results. Remember the three old codgers up the hill in Exodus 17 when Joshua is fighting the Amalekites down on the plain. Aaron and Hur are up on the hill holding up Moses' hands in prayer. Remember that in Exodus chapter 17? And it says, as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. Why is it so often? And now I'm, now I'm 70 now, okay? So I, I qualify as an old codger. Why is it whenever there's a prayer meeting, it's the old codgers who turn up? <laughs> and the young hipsters are sipping their lattes and swapping recipes on Facebook. <laughs> That's a bit harsh, I think, isn't it? Can't see any hippies here. But it's, <laughs> but it's so uncool to go to a prayer meeting, isn't it? And yet that's where the battle is fought. I remember reading a book by uh, Samuel... Nesdali, amongst the Soviet evangelicals, he was telling of a, a visit to, um, to a Baptist church, a large Baptist church in Moscow after the, after the end of the Cold War. And he noticed in the congregation there were rows and rows and rows of women uh, dressed in black. And he asked the pastor, who are those ladies sitting up there dressed in black? Ah, said the pastor. Those are the women who prayed communism out of Russia. See, that's where the battle is fought and won. Those little old babushkas. They didn't have Kalishnikov rifles, they had Bibles. And they prayed their Bibles. They took hold of the promises of God and wouldn't let him go. And they prayed communism out of Russia. Join with me in my struggle, says Paul. If we want to see new churches evangelized into existence in Tasmania, 
this is the way it's going to happen. When William Carey went to India with the gospel, he wrote home to his friend Andrew Fuller. He says, I'm going into the pit, but you must hold the rope. <coughs> Who are you holding the rope for? Or do you just take a polite interest in world mission? Perhaps you enjoy getting an email every now and again with the latest news. But I, who's holding the rope? Join with me in my struggle, he says. Verse, I urge you, brothers. I'm going into a dangerous place. My life will be threatened. I'm going to be ridiculed. I'm going to be pilloried by the media, says. Join with me in my struggle. Hold the rope for me. Pray that I may be rescued. See what he says, verse 30. Pray, pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service in Jerusalem, this is the offering he's bringing to Jerusalem, will be acceptable to the saints there, so that by God's will I may come to you and with joy and, and together with you be refreshed. That's his prayer. Did God answer that prayer? Well, the account in the book of Acts shows us that indeed God did answer Paul's prayer, but this is just like God, not quite in the way he was expecting. He went to Jerusalem with the money and was warmly received by the church. You can read all about this in Acts. But the commander of the Roman troops had to rescue him from a lynch mob. His nephew, do you know that Paul had a nephew? It's there in Acts. His nephew visited him in the barracks with the news that a contract had been taken out on his life. And, and, so with the Ro and, and, and so the Romans whisked him away to Caesarea, where he appeared before Felix and Festus and Agrippa. It's like they were playing pass the parcel with him. But eventually God answered his prayer and he came to Rome through trials and court appearances, shipwreck, Snake bite, in chains, and with all expenses paid by the Emperor Nero. <laughs> That's God, isn't it? God always answers prayer, but not, not always in the way we might want him to. Maybe that's why we don't pray. Because we're afraid of how he might answer our prayers. Why, he might even just make you the answer to your own prayer. He might even send your children or your grandchildren to another part of the world so that you'll never see them again except on Skype. Remember, he's not a tame lion, you know. What kind of a God do you want? A boringly predictable God who is at your beck and call, who just rubber stamps your plans? Or do you want a sovereignly interesting God who does all things according to his will? It's good to plan. It's good to have ambition. But our plans and ambitions must always be subject to the will of God. Did Paul go to Spain? Well, we don't know if he went to Spain. Nobody really knows whether he got to Spain. The last glimpse we have of him in the book of Acts is in Rome, under house arrest, preaching the kingdom of God boldly without hindrance, it says. The word of God, that's what matters, isn't it? The word of God is not chained. We're, in, we're, we're dispensable. God can pick us up and use us and then put us down and forget about us. If, well, he would never forget about us. But it's not about us. 
about Jesus. It's about God and God's kingdom. We need to get that big picture. So Paul has a priestly ministry to proclaim Christ to the nations, to see the Gentiles set apart by the Holy Spirit, to bring them as an offering to the God of Israel. In preaching the gospel and proclaiming Christ, he's worshipping God. Paul has a pioneer ministry, breaking new ground, boldly going where no one has been before. And there's an urgent need for us to do that. We need to ask, where next with the gospel? And we need to help one another to break new ground. That, that will require gospel generosity. Why can't we, you know, we're all from, you're all, I think, probably from this whole area. Why can't we all get together in one room and say, what, what can we do to help one another start a new church there where there isn't one? Who can we spare? <laughs> the, the Cornerstone Church in Hobart, which is one of the, the largest and most flourishing of our church plants in Hobart, was a cooperative church plant between the Presbyterian Church and the Christian Reformed Church. So we had a bunch of university students at Crossroads, and the Kingston Reformed Church gave us some of their best families to form a core group to plant a church, which turned out to be a Presbyterian church. How generous of them. See, it's not about denominations. It's not about, it's about the gospel. And such a ministry, of course, is perilous. It's fraught with danger. Whenever there's gospel advance, there'll be fierce opposi opposition. And we need to feel Paul's heartbeat in this passage, don't we? And to pray as never before for the nations to be brought in, for the Jews to be converted. Let's pray. Lord, our Lord and our God, we bow before you and we bless you as the one who is the creator of heaven and earth. This world belongs to God, the world, its wealth and all the nations. And you've brought into being all of the peoples of this world. They're yours, they belong to you. And we acknowledge, O oh God, that you have a heart for them. And that it is not your desire that any should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of the truth. And so we pray, Lord, as your people gathered here today, that you'd give us your heart for the peoples of this world, that the nations might rejoice in you, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.